Well, hey, it's good to be with you in this place this morning. I don't know how much you need it, but I can tell you I need it. I need it. I need to be here, and I need to be with you guys, um, so I'm glad to be here. Let me say a couple of things, just uh, housekeeping starting out. I think I misspoke two weeks ago. Um, I, actually, I never think I misspoke, but um, I, I've been told that I misspoke by several, so they're probably right. I might have said, hey, uh, we've got uh, our last week in Kingdom Series two weeks ago. What I meant to say was that was our last week in the Old Testament. In the Kingdom series before we launch into the New Testament. So we got two more weeks, uh, two more weeks in the Kingdom series, and then we'll have a standalone and we'll have our Christmas Eve services. The second thing is like the drum area looks different this morning. Don't be shocked by that. We had drums here before. Um, we just have butter drums now because they were kind of patched together and 14 years old, and we encase them for control uh, so that the drums are actually controlled by the sound booth, which uh, helps us in here and helps those watching online. So I know it's new for us, but it is not new across the landscape of churches um, in our day today. So I just wanted to throw that out there and tell you also, if, you, like if you're interested in church history, uh, it's a fun read to go back and read the response of churches uh, when organs first uh, began to be placed in churches, when pianos first began to be placed in churches, there was a, an outcry from certain segments about the ugliness of them um, at the front of the church, about the fact that those instruments aren't mentioned in the New Testament. So it's always, uh, music's always interesting, but I wanted to uh, acknowledge that the drums look different. Uh, John said just to call it a, a COVID case. Um, so we're making sure that, I don't know why only the drummer's protected or maybe we're protected from him. Um, as I looked at it during run-through, I thought, I would like to have one of those sometimes just during the day. I'm like, am I alone? Am I the only one like say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm encased right now. I can't, I can't visit with you at the store. I'm actually moving around encased, so I like that. Um, Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be as we pick up and continue this kingdom series. Now, we saw creation. We saw fall in Genesis. We saw God come in Genesis 12 and choose a man named Abram, change his name to Abraham, his wife to Sarah, uh, make uh, a covenant with him and create from him and his wife, due to the power and faithfulness of God, a covenant people. This covenant people, the nation of Israel, was created to be a blessing to all people, all nations, all races, ethnicities, all socioeconomic groups. And time and again, we've seen them throughout the redemptive journey fail in major ways, fail to understand who they'd been called to be as the people of God, fail to understand that to be the people of God is to be a people on mission. That's it. That's it. And what Jesus does when he comes and he brings the kingdom of God and he inaugurates, initiates the coming kingdom of God on earth as he launches out disciples to go and to plant and start through the power of the Holy Spirit missional communities of faith all around the world. And that's the history of the Christian church. And the West is rediscovering this. Over the last 30 to 40 years, we've realized that our landscape has changed drastically. And for us as the people of God to be faithful and to even be around as communities of faith in 15 or 20 years in our country, we've got to begin to understand ourselves again as missional communities, as mission outposts more than institutional places of favor. 
And I don't know about you, um, but I can say this about me. Uh, often God does not work in ways that I'm expecting. He does not work in ways that I'm anticipating him to work. And sometimes even if by chance he, he does work on a timeline that I've imagined, he doesn't work the way I would have worked. He doesn't work the way I thought he was going to work. And I just wonder uh, if any of you have ever had times in your life, in your family seasons, where things simply don't go like you expected. Anybody been there? Yeah, some of you, like, it's your whole life. You're like, I wish they taught this in kindergarten, right? The book, Everything You Need to Know You Learn in Kindergarten, they didn't teach that. They didn't teach that, that most of what you do um, throughout life is respond and navigate around what you did not expect to be happening. And this is part of what happens when Jesus comes on the scene in Luke 4 and begins uh, really his public ministry. Uh, last week, Ken Kington preached for me. We were out just trying to experience some rest uh, as a family. And we'd gone up to North Carolina, up and over to North Carolina, uh, to Ridgecrest. And some of you, if you're Southern Baptist Heritage people, will be familiar with Ridgecrest. It's one of uh, several uh, encampments that used to be Southern Baptist encampments. But as, um, as all denominations have declined, uh, denominations have largely sold off those large uh, retreat properties, including the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and it's now just Ridgecrest Conference Center, but Christian-owned uh, and operated. Great place to be. Uh, you got tennis courts and basketball and miniature golf. And I don't know what I'm going to do with this thing on my ear. I just had to stop and acknowledge the fact that I'm going to keep touching my ear. So it's going to be uncomfortable for you, but maybe less so now. So um, they've got 10 miles of trails. They've got a lake where you can fish. They've got a full-service dining hall that's not open during Thanksgiving. So we were packing food in and out. But in my mind... I had one thing pictured, rest, delight, joy. We were going to pile in our minivan as a family of seven, our urban assault vehicle, and we were going to head to North Carolina with the children singing carols and the twins sleeping. And we were going to get there, and the children were going to jump out and say, Mom and Dad, go up and rest. We'll unload the luggage. Um, and we were going to go up. Don't steal my thunder, James. I'm getting there. We were going to go up and lay down. The children were going to calmly bring all of the luggage up. They were going to say, hey, why don't you and mom just enjoy the evening? We'll take care of Zeke and Zane. You know, and that's how the days would go there. I, I pictured myself getting up early in the morning, Sharon and I kind of trading off times, going out underneath the big statue of, of Billy Graham and sucking power off of that and sitting with my Bible and reading and just spending time with God before I hiked the beauty of the trail with my children, talking about what an excellent father I'd been through all the chaos of the move and how much grace I show at home and leadership. It didn't go like that at all, right? And so I planned this and I thought, you know what? We're adjusting to being a family of seven still and kind of divided kids' ages, but let's go make memories. We made memories. We made memories. Zeke and Zane, the two-year-old twins, they decided about 3.30 each night that they're done, right? They're like, don't put us in a pack and play and expect us to sleep all night. Um, Sharon handled most of that. I have to give her cred here before she outs me on Facebook. Um, but I was stuck in the room too. And so it violated my sleep along with hers. So they were kind of up and down and sometimes they were playing and sometimes they were crying and sometimes they were screaming and sometimes they would sleep. 
And so any of you who've had little kids or can remember little kids or seen a little child, um, when their sleep pattern is interrupted at night, their days are different. You know what I'm saying? And then their nap is interrupted. And so this was how I couldn't wait to get back to work so I could rest. It didn't go like any of us expected, but there were beautiful, sweet moments and great opportunities while we were there. Beautiful place to just breathe and to rest in God's goodness and his glory. We have to be soft and pliable and responsive as the people of God if we want to hear the voice of God, to see the movement of God, and to participate in what God is doing. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus has been tested in the wilderness. He's gone through a time of temptation. And then in verse 16, we find this. I'm going to read and roughly make my way through this passage. Then we're going to come back and camp uh, for just a minute at verses 18 and 19. Let me do this. Let me pray before we jump in at verse 16. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no authority but your authority given to your Son, communicated and at work in our life through your word. And God, I pray this morning that you would do in all of our lives and all of our spirits what only you can do. God, what human preparation, human effort, human skill can't accomplish. God, speak to us, stir us. God, meet us where we are this morning, however low or high. God, however filled with joy or however empty we may feel. Meet us, God. You are sufficient, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at verse 16. He, that is Jesus, went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus was used to church attendance, so to speak. He was there regularly. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, I, I want you to know something here. Jesus isn't just messing with them, right? He doesn't just read the scroll and then sit down as a way of saying, take that. He sits down because he's assuming the posture of teaching. He's assuming the posture of teaching in a Jewish synagogue. It's different in our day. If we're introducing um, a speaker, a guest speaker, or something like that, they're typically seated, and we introduce them, and they come and stand and teach. But it was different in Jesus' day. So he sits down and prepares to expound what he's read from Isaiah, from chapters 58 and 61. Jesus pulls some things together and synthesizes them into a single message. Verse 21, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is filled 
fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we don't know the rest. Luke chose not to include the rest of what Jesus said as he expounded these passages from Isaiah. But this is powerful stuff. His audience would have understood that the sections that he read were sections about the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the anointed one, the chosen one of God, who is going to set all things right. And in their minds over the years of defeat and decimation and captivity and exile and rescue, they had come to understand that to mean the one who is going to come and exalt them ethnically and politically as the nation of Israel. He was going to destroy the evil Romans and the evil everyone else. And Israel would be glorified and Israel would shine. And Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your learning. He says, I am the one. And let me just say this morning, whatever you're wrestling with, wherever else or in whomever else you feel like you're going to find the answer, hear Jesus say, I am the one. Whatever it is, darkness sin, deep regret, addiction, whatever it is, you may need help from this place or that, but ultimately you need Jesus Christ. Ultimately your neighbors need Jesus Christ. Ultimately your co-workers need Jesus Christ. Ultimately your spouse needs Jesus Christ, which most of you would say, yes, Lord, too. But your spouse also knows that you need Jesus Christ. Your children do. Our land does. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? All right, so Jesus is on a roll up until this point. He's doing good. If he's in preaching class, he'd be getting an A right now. Whatever he said, however he expounded this text in Isaiah, they're pleased. The people are excited. We've got one of our own here. Look at him. And they're not bagging on him when they say, isn't this Joseph's son? They're amazed that a guy that they know to not have any special or unique learning in the scriptures can teach like this. Has this kind of insight. They're like, here's a a blue-collar carpenter guy, yet he has this unique skill. And they're all in. And Jesus would often bring them all in and then blow up the setting. And move and say things that they're not expecting. And I'll just tell you, friends, he does the same thing today for us. And let me just say this. I'll set up what I'll reinforce at the end. That you are never more in danger of misrepresenting, misunderstanding, or just flat missing who God is and all that he's doing than you are when you are deeply entrenched in a long-tenured church life. And that's, that's me, right? I'm an insider from birth, born in the nursery. Not really, but I'll guarantee you my mom got me there as fast as possible. Now that I have kids, I understand the unique spirituality of young parents. That hunger is for 90 minutes without babies. Right? We often had people when we did a church plant in California tell us they loved coming on Sunday mornings because they got a break from their children. They weren't that interested in Jesus. Now, some of them got Jesus in the end, too. But they came for that. But from nursery on up, I've been inside the church all my life. And I know 
this danger well. I know the danger of thinking, man, I know the rules. I know how to play the game. I've got this down. I've got this down. And the danger exists in my heart as much as yours and more so. And because you, you add calling, seminary, training, equipping, experience on top of all of that, and it just adds more layers of danger, more layers of, of whisper that I understand God, and I understand how he moves and why he moves and what he's going to do. So up until this point, they're with Jesus. And then he starts talking again. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And they will in about three years, mockingly. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, he hasn't been to Capernaum yet, but he's headed there. And he's looking down the road, and he knows that really this is not a friendly audience to him that morning. It's a hostile one. And he knows that the word of God's not really penetrating their hearts. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. So Jesus is reaching back from 1 Kings 17 and he's pulling up a story that they will be familiar with. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Let's talk about this for just a minute. Jesus is saying, be very careful with your immediate praise. Be very careful with what you think I'm saying and what you think it means that I'm saying, I have now come. I am he, I am the Messiah. Because insiders often miss it. And then he tells these stories of God using outsiders as objects of his blessing and favor, not Israelites. So you've got this period of famine in 1 Kings 17. And God could have sent Elijah to the widows of Israel, but he doesn't. He sends him to a Phoenician widow instead. And he sends him and he provides for this widow. And he eventually restores life to this widow's son. Because this widow, regardless of her ethnicity, regardless of her inside or outsider status in Israel, her heart was soft and responsive. And then he goes on in verse 27, and he pulls from 2 Kings 5. And during this time, the plague was throughout the land. There was a pandemic across the land. And there were sick people throughout Israel and the surrounding nations. And Jesus points out that it's not a member of the nation of Israel, the insiders, that God chooses to move in and work in. It's Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was the, the, the king's commander, the military uh, commander for King Aram. So he, he blesses a Phoenician widow. He blesses a Syrian military commander and heals him. And the temperature of the people listening is starting to get higher. 
Instead of receiving this and it producing repentance and brokenness. Where there's a sense of falling on their knees before God. And repenting of entitlement. And self-exaltation. They begin to get angry. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. You ever had a conversation just go sideways real quick? You're like, I'm not sure what just happened. This this is kind of where this goes. Not that Jesus is surprised at all. Um, But many of us across life, we've been in a situation. Sometimes it's a date. Like back when you were dating, when things start off good and by the end of the night, you're just glad you got out alive, right? Because it did not go well. Husbands, have you ever called your wife and simply by the way she said hello, you thought, I should proceed with caution? Ever been there? See, there's, there's frustration and there's anger and there's fury. And those are different levels. Man, maybe you've come home, and I'm going to pick on us for a minute. Maybe you've not been being fully what you should have been. Not me, of course, but other men in the room. And you come home, and you open the door, you're like, hey, babe, and your wife makes a noise. or She says something. And in a minute, you're trying to filter, are, are, are we level one frustrated? Where I just want to, I want to listen, and I want to help. Are we level two angry? Where I know I have done something wrong. And I need to admit that right away. I'm sorry. And when she says, for what? I say, for whatever, right? For whatever I've done or not done. And then sometimes there's fury where you apologize for being born. And for her having to live with you. And you repent. Fury is where the people are here. Because the one who was supposed to come, the Messiah, and pet them and pat them and self-congratulate them and exalt them is not doing that. He's not doing that. He's pointing out the tremendous need they have for a spiritual awakening. But there's no one harder to awaken than someone who doesn't know they're asleep. And this is where they where all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, they got up, drove him out of town, and took him to, th- to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Can we just admit, and nobody can get angry quicker than religious folk, right? I mean, Jesus said the wrong thing there in about four sentences, and they're trying to kill him. They're trying to kill him. This, there's an insidious nature to religion in us. And if you're, um, if you're a rules follower by nature and, and somehow you've missed the gospel and, and you've, you've understood Christianity as a set of rules and you've learned the game and you're good at it, nothing infuriates you more than people who can't follow the rules as well as you do. And this is the culture that Jesus is speaking in. The synagogue was filled at this time with very self-approving men who were religious. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm here, the one you've been looking for is here. But it's not going to be like you think it's going to be. Look at verse 30, I love this. They bring him to the brow of the hill 
uh, that the town's on in order to throw him off the cliff and kill him. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Right, right? I mean, that's when you play the Son of God card. Not today. I love this. It's as if Jesus said, I don't have time for this foolishness. I got places to go and people to save. Right? I've got a message to declare. And you can just see it up there. You can just see, hey, who was supposed to watch Jesus? Um, blame starts going sideways. What happened? He just eases on through. Tell me you introverts wouldn't love this gift at times. Right? Even at family gatherings. Yeah, introverts know this. Jesus, just give me a small portion of what you had in full capacity here. I'd just like to walk through without anyone noticing. Uh, introverts, you ever been there, like a, a Christmas party, a, a, a work Christmas party, and you think it's just something i got to get through? I'm just going to get dressed, get through it, and then get back home and put my comfortable clothes on again? Jesus just walks right through, and this is this great reminder of what Jesus tells us in John 10, 18, that no one takes his life from him. He laid it down at the right time of his own accord. Nobody touches Jesus without his consent. He walks right through them. But let's go back and look at verses 18 and 19 again. There's significance here, and I don't want us to miss what Jesus is saying here about the nature of the kingdom of God and who we are as the people of God. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What kind of news? Good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not another list of what you need to do to get to God. The gospel is an announcement, a declaration of what God has done for you fully in Christ. It's an invitation to lay down your pride, to lay down your arms, and to say with humility, yes, God, thank you. I submit my life to you. I receive the life that you give to me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, I want to deal with this. I want to run straight at it. Jesus is not talking right here at this time about the materially poor. But there is no question at all throughout Scripture that God relates in a very unique way to the materially poor. There's no question throughout the history of the church and today that those who are poorer in terms of material possessions, are most likely to respond to the gospel. Those who are in need physically are most likely to be sensitive spiritually and open and honest about the greater needs in their lives. But he's saying, hey, there is a spiritual depravity that characterizes the human condition. And I've been sent to proclaim good news to those who understand their spiritual depravity. That ought to be good news for you and me this morning. At whatever point, if you said yes to Jesus and become a follower of Christ, you've been reborn, you have experienced regeneration, and the Spirit of God lives in you. It's not just that you needed this good news once, you need to hear it day in and day out. You need to hear God say, Jesus Christ is both the author and the perfecter of your faith. 
It's by grace, not just when you start. It's by grace day after day after day after day. It's not by grace and then by your performance. It's by grace and love and compassion and as a result of. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you are to become this kind of people. This kind of missional community. This kind of of group of people that lives for those who are still outside. Those who are yet to hear. It's good news to the poor. He goes on and says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now there's all kinds of ways to be imprisoned. There's physical imprisonment. There's mental and emotional and spiritual imprisonment. Jesus was speaking to a bunch of people who were spiritually imprisoned by a religious system that they had helped build and create. And it produced not people who were more gracious and more gentle and more loving, but people who were angrier, meaner, and more hostile. And it was their prison. Sometimes we're imprisoned by habits of sin and patterns of sin that just grab a hold of us. Who in here hasn't struggled with the same thing over and over and over? At least at some season of your life and found yourself saying, why did I do that again? Why did I say that again? You're not alone. You're not alone. This is part of what plagues us as human beings. And it's meant to be whispers of truth that we need someone greater than us to deliver us. We need someone greater than us to do in our hearts what we simply cannot do for ourselves. And if you want to test this, just get up tomorrow morning and say, I will do nothing but what is righteous, good, and just all day. I will say nothing but what is righteous, good, and just edifying for the building up of those around me all day. I will think no thoughts except what is righteous, good, and just. And see how long it lasts. Right? I mean, some of you, you're not going to get out of the bathroom brushing your teeth. Right? Part of this is supposed to, part of this is the goodness of God whispering to us, you need me. If you'll stop trying to earn what I will freely give you, then you're positioned to receive it. And to continually be changed and sanctified and grown in grace by my spirit. Maybe you're imprisoned by regret. You've done things in your past or maybe you had things done to you in your past. That you just can't seem to get out of your mind. Friends, that that whisper that you're not good enough does not come from God. That whisper that just a little bit more and you'll be enough. That maybe if this hadn't happened or you hadn't done this, then the the fullness of the grace of God would be available to you. That's simply not true. God says it's available to you based on who he is, not who you are. You simply receive it and then you extend it, friends. Because you've got to receive it every single day. That's why when you go to work or you sit in class next to that person that you feel like God created just to annoy you. That you just ask God to help you see them the way that he sees them. 
and to see underneath everything that frustrates you their own brokenness and need for God. He says he's been sent to proclaim freedom. Freedom for the prisoners. The the recovery of sight for the blind. That those who could not see what was right before them before can now see. There's nothing more tragic than when you and I miss God's activity when he's right in front of us. When he's working in our midst. But they were people blinded. He said to set the oppressed free. Now part of this in their day the oppressed were were those living out normal lives in Israel who had been oppressed, oppressed by religious leaders who Jesus confronts later and says you strap them down with chains and weights that you yourself can't live up to. Why are you wrapping them up in expectations and requirements and obligations that you know even you can't live? And Jesus says, I've come. And part of what I've come to do is to blow up all forms of human religion. This is not about you working to God. This is about God coming to you. God coming to his world and his creation to restore it. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's talk about this for just a minute. He's reaching back and he's pulling aspects of, of the year of Jubilee, every 15th year where debts were forgiven and slaves were set free. Like, I'm, I'm into that right now. If every 15 years, like, all mortgages are wiped out, all car loans, student loan debt, I'm about that. Until they start talking about transferring land back. I come from a land-owning family. I'm like, I hope the records were lost. I don't want the land to go back to whoever the original owner was. You know, then I'll start getting all human. We paid for that land. I didn't pay for anything, right? My parents did. There's this great scene. I don't know if you're a sitcom person, but on a, a sitcom called Last Man Standing, where I, I, I love it. Uh, it stars Tim Allen, and he and his wife are sitting out back having a glass of wine, relaxing one night, and their middle daughter... Um, comes out, who's a little bit high maintenance and, you know, definitely costs more than the other two daughters do. Uh, she comes out and, and asks if she can go do this or go do that, need some money, and he gives her a little bit of money, and she says, uh, she's going to eat, and she says, I need more. I'm a big tipper. It's kind of my thing. And so he's like, well, that's, that's enough. And she's like, well, I need more. And he said, well, why don't you get a job? And she goes, oh, my gosh, are we poor? And he says, uh, you are. Your mother and I are just fine. So you're poor. There's actually nothing that you own. I'm off on a tangent here, but I'm out on the land thing with Jubilee, but I'm all about the debt cancellation. But Jesus is pulling back in this this language from Isaiah 61, this, this, um, this picture of the freedom that God gives his people. And I, I want you to understand, the year of the Lord's favor, so, so much of the silliness and the ugliness that exists in church life exists Because we do not really understand the pleasure that God feels for us in Christ. You understand maybe that God has accepted you, and maybe maybe begrudgingly so, but that's not how it works. When God sees you as you are this morning right now in Christ, it stirs pleasure in him. You are his treasured possession, the Old Testament says. You are his delight. God delights in you right now as you are clothed in the beauty and righteousness and sufficiency of Christ. 
The favor of the Lord is about the pleasure of the Lord, and it leads to rest. This is part of what Jubilee was all about. The last Sunday of this month, the 27th, uh, we won't have any services. We're going to let the Christmas Eve services on Thursday night be our services for the week. And that Sunday, we're going to practice Sabbath as a community. We're going to rest. We'll put out a, a video devotional that you can watch at home, a short thing on Sabbath and rest if you want to. But part of what we want to do is honor the reality that God is God and we are not. And we can take one Sunday and rest. And we're going to encourage you that Sunday to worship God all day long. To delight yourself in the fact that God has the world spinning under his control, not yours. That things are going to be okay. We're going to encourage you to eat good food. And spend time with people you enjoy. Like, right, this is not a ministry day. Uh, this is a day to spend time with friends and family you enjoy. To go for a walk and just receive from God. To take off and lay aside the clothes of religiousness or religiosity that somehow begins to panic. If we go, wait, one Sunday? Yeah, one Sunday out of 52, we can relax and practice Sabbath. Experience a little bit of the kind of freedom that God had intended as he established not only the Sabbath, but bigger patterns like Jubilee. And just thank God that in Christ we are sufficient, we are enough. That in Christ we have no one left to impress and nothing left to prove. We're going to rest. We're going to honor God that day. This passage is ultimately about Jesus saying, I'm here, I've come. However, however, it's not going to go like you expect. It's not going to look like you think it's going to look. And if you think about it, I just jotted down some stories and some thoughts uh, briefly uh, on a sticky note. If you think all of Jesus' ministry, he was trying to get this through. And he tries to get it through to us. That the gospel is this beautiful, multi-ethnic, multi-cultural invitation and announcement by God that he has done all necessary for all people and one day will right all wrongs and will restore the beauty and perfection and glory of his creation. And he was always trying to get this through, that he's working in all ethnicities, that he's working in broken people with dirty pasts and messed up circumstances still. You remember the Good Samaritan story. The guy gets beaten and robbed, and the, the, Israel, uh, the, the religious elites in Israel, they come by, the Levite comes by, he's like, yeah, I don't think so. Right? He's a Samaritan. Or he's not a Samaritan, he's a, he's a beat-up guy. He's, he's bruised, he's dirty, he's gross, he's bloody. I'm not going to touch him and become unclean. Right? The priest comes by, he doesn't do anything for him. But the Samaritan, who they hated, comes by. Takes him into town, pays for him to be cared for, takes his care on him, Luke 10. Jesus heals uh, 10 men in Luke 17 of leprosy. You remember that story? He, he kind of waits, they're going off, and he heals them on the move. I like that. I think that's cool. Jesus doesn't heal them right there. He lets them start walking, and then he, then he heals them. Only one comes back to say thank you, and it's a Samaritan. The parable of the tenants, you remember this one? This is one of those parables that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew Mark and Luke. Jesus tells the story. 
of a man who owns a vineyard. And he sends a, a couple of servants to um, receive the fruit from that vineyard. And the tenants beat him up and send him off. And he says, finally, I'll send my son. I'll send my young prince to go in my stead. And they'll honor him and respect him. And they kill him. And Jesus says, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do with the tenants? He says he's going to drive them out and kill them and give the vineyard to faithful tenants. I don't have to explain that. Jesus was saying to them, and they got it right away. And right after that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees go away and they plot on how they can have Jesus arrested and executed. He was saying, if you're not going to be faithful with the mission that God's entrusted to you, with the vineyard, you'll find yourself outside of it and he'll find people who will be faithful with it. And on and on it goes. He selects Matthew as a disciple, a dirty traitor's tax collector. He goes and has dinner with Zacchaeus, who everybody despised, a chief tax collector, who was one of their people, but working with Rome for their own subjugation. He's anointed in Luke 7 by a sinful woman, probably a woman who'd had a very sexually immoral life. And, and the religious men around him are scandalized by this. And Jesus receives this act of pure worship by this unclean woman and tells them, she's done for me right now more than any of you have done. He accepts Mary when she comes and assumes the posture of a disciple in Luke 10 instead of staying busy in the kitchen with women's work like Martha does. A posture of learning and, and discipleship that was only for men in his day. Jesus is accused, accused again and again of being a, a drunkard and a glutton because he drank wine and he ate food in the presence of people who overdrank and overate. Again and again and again, he's shattering the stereotypes and what we think about who God is and how he works. The entire message of the portion of Scripture that we read this morning, the central message is that insiders are always at danger of missing out on who God really is and what he's doing. And as I said before, that danger is as big or bigger in my heart as it is in any of yours. And my prayer this morning, my plea with God, is that we would be a people whose hearts are soft and pliable and responsive. As the band makes their way back up here and gets set up, um, let me ask you to stand, and we're going to pray together. And I hope that your prayer this morning would be, God, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. God, whoever you reveal yourself to be, let me see that. God, wherever you're moving, let me join you. God, let the cry of my heart only be for you to speak and me to follow. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that you pour out on us. God, thank you that you have, God, chosen us, redeemed us, not for our sake, God, but for the sake of your mission on earth. God, I pray that in a room where many of us have been in church for years and years and years, decades, God, that we would not presume to know 
nearly all of who you are, how you move, and how you work. God, I'm asking you this morning, make our hearts soft. Make my heart soft. God, make us pliable. God, make us responsive to you. Father, I pray that you'd be pleased to work in and through us, that collectively our attitude, our joy, our generosity, our outward focus would honor you and delight you. God, I pray this, I ask this, I plead with you for this in the powerful and precious and sufficient name of Jesus.